If you went to any real estate owner today and said, hey, today's the day you have to sell. Everything is worth less than it was a year and a half, two years ago. And most people don't want to say that out loud. It's a fact. What people will say, and there's some truth to it, is nothing. Very little is transacting. So we don't really know where values are. In my head, I think we're 20% lower than we were. Welcome to The Climb Podcast, where wisdom flows from one generation to the next. In today's fast-paced world, we rarely pause to contemplate the intricacies that fuel success. Sit back, unwind, and immerse yourself in the art of storytelling, an age-old tradition that connects us through raw, authentic conversations. No topic is off-limits as we delve into the pivotal crossroads and defining moments that shaped today's leader. The ascent is never easy. Welcome to The Climb. Welcome to The Climb. I'm your host, Michael Moore, and I couldn't be more excited to sit down with a relatively new friend, but a very fast-growing, deep connection. I feel like the first time we met, there was an instantaneous bond. And as I sit planning over the holidays about what the climb would look like in 2024, I can't think of a better guest to kick off the year than Mike Eklund. Mike, welcome to The Climb. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the invite and I look forward to speaking with you today. I think we're going to have a really good time. I did a little little reconnaissance work uh, with some of our mutual friends. And so rather than rattle off all of the accomplishments in your successful career, which we'll get to, I just want to share with you some of the words used to describe you when I asked our mutual friends for a sampling. The enforcer, jacked, tenacious competition, diligent, quietly intense, and was rumored to have dominated Zach Thomas in college when they played against each other. And finally, and this will kind of lead into all of the, the successes you're having in business, Marijuana Mike. <laughs> oh, tell the last couple. So it sounded like an in, asshole. <laughs> <laughs> well, g- give me a little feedback in, in hearing those words from people that you and I know together so well. Well, it, it, it's definitely interesting to, I guess, I look in the mirror and sometimes I don't always see what other people see. I, I think uh, there's a lot of generosity there. I do think there is also a kinder, gentler side. So it's not all intensity. I, I try to influence more than force, if you will, but... The one that sticks is tenacious. For some people, things come easy and, and things have not always come easy for me. And, you know, I would say my path has been dictated more by my willingness to grind than just showing up and being great day one. So that resonated with me. You know, you bring up an interesting point, And I think there are many reasons that, that I was just drawn to you as, as a person, as a business leader, as a father. But certainly one was you sharing pretty early on. You brought it up well when you said, I don't necessarily see myself this way. And that's that's kind of where I want to start. You you shared with me, you know, very early on after you were born, there were some fears by doctors, your parents, et cetera, that you 
you might be blind or go blind. And like, if I was to lay out the things that scare me the most, it would probably like, I, I think I could be fine if I was deaf. I mean, half the time, I don't want to hear everything that everybody has to say anyway. But being blind, like that just scares the shit out of me. So maybe start like, when did you realize it? You know, how are you being communicated to with your, like, just kind of walk us through that, that feeling. And then also start giving us some insight in how it shaped who you are today. Yeah. So, you know, I'll give my parents and my doctors uh, a lot of credit. Not that they hid anything from me. I had a lot of doctor's appointments when I was younger. But the one thing I knew is that I could see something. And it's not like I had great vision and lost it. So in my head, I had perfect vision because it's the same that I was born with. Things I did notice is, you know, early on in sports, you know, I, I wasn't the greatest baseball player. And when you're young and you're not good at baseball, they put you in the outfield. And so when you can't see, that just makes you worse. So that, that, that hit me pretty hard. You know, I knew in class, if, if I didn't sit in the front of the room, I couldn't see. Even then, sometimes, depending on the teacher's writing, you know, I couldn't see. Even with that, I don't think I picked up on fully until kids got to the age where they started teasing. And part of my eye problem is my eyes move back and forth, and I'm not aware when they do, and I can't control it. And, you know, kids of a certain age aren't the kindest. And so a lot of people were saying, what's what's wrong with your eyes? And, you know, I, I never realized that there was that part of it. So, you know, my parents, I think did an excellent job just having me live like an ordinary kid. And so I was doing a lot of things before I fully understood the supposed limits of that. You know, until you phrased it like that, I don't know if I've ever really thought about sort of the potential cruelty in the ways that we learn the things about us that are different. Ultimately, they may create who we are, who we become, but your peers, especially at that age, are like a really brutal mirror because they're, you know, they're going to, they're going to zero in on that, those differences because that's what kids do. And then that's their opportunity to say, well, Mike's weird because his eyes move. So as you heard that, how did you internal? I mean, you're a big guy, so you probably could have just well, maybe you weren't big back then. Like, how how did you how did you internalize that and then turn it into a strength? So, you know, I, I eventually kind of grew into a, a pretty good sized guy. But at this point, I had a June birthday, so I was the younger end of my birthday. Back then, it was in vogue to hold hold boys back a year. So I was you know a year and a half younger than everybody else. So you know, I couldn't necessarily physical my way through it initially, but it hurt. You know, it wasn't great for my self-esteem. It made me angry. And sometimes I did fight. And uh, sometimes that meant getting my ass kicked. Sometimes it meant me getting in trouble. And, you know, there's a story I'll never forget. It was my, my parents, we call, we call it my pimp suit now, but they had a rodeo outfit for me that I just loved. It was, you know, it was in the seventies. It was perfect. It was green denim matching. I had all kinds of cool colors on it. And I had these cowboy boots and it was my favorite outfit to wear. And that day on the playground, I had it and my parents know how much I loved it. And a group of kids started teasing me about the eyes again. 
I just got into one of them. I mean, I, I lost it. And yeah, the hardest thing was facing my mother because uh, she was so mad at me for getting in a fight at school. That was not okay. And it's hard for me to talk about to this day because I never told her why. And she asked why. And I just said, you know, it was an argument over a game. It would have killed her if she knew why I got in the fight. And it's part of that because my explanation wasn't good. And even if it was good, my mom just didn't go for fighting. Yeah, I got my pimp suit taken away. And by the time I was able to get my <laughs> pimp suit back, you know, I'd, I'd outgrown it. So, I mean, there's, there's consequences. So that was one example of fighting. You know, as far as growing from it, you know, at some point you find out people, even at that age, they eventually will accept you for who you, who you are, who you aren't. And I knew I couldn't run from that forever. You know, I still have stuff today. I had an investor meet with me and decline. He said, you know, I, you know, he said something to the effect of my dad always told me never to work with anybody with shifty eyes. Yeah. What are you, what are you going to do? I mean, you can't. Wow. So yeah, it's, it, you, you can cry about it or you know, you can, you can control what you can control. And that's what I chose to do. Amen to that. So it, did they ever pinpoint exactly what was causing it? And then did, did you also develop or have to do some type of physical therapy to learn s- skills to cope with it? So, you know, they, they really have it. And there's, there's not too many people that, that have it. Some people get it from a traumatic head injury. And one of the bad things is when I'm driving, it mimics something that cops use for a DWI test during the horizontal gaze test. Mm-hmm. So for a while, I kept the thing in my car for my doctor who says he has nystagmus. Stop bothering me. But you know, as far as dealing with it, again, I I didn't know that I had something to deal with, and there's nothing I could do to control the eye movement. It was I just had to use my eyes to see, and sometimes that meant being willing to speak up if we had assigned seats and go to the teacher and say, "Hey, I need to I need to move to the front. I can't see." Yeah, what what became a little more challenging over time is that I ended up with dyslexia on top of it. So that took a lot of work. And that was, I had the greatest parents in the world. They would get up with me every single morning at 5 a.m. We'd do flashcards. We'd, you know, work our butt off. And that just became, became normal and we're able to move forward in a successful way with that. You know, I think there's, unfortunately, there's a lot of the next generation that spends time trying to not do the things that their parents did. And I think in this case, that's a beautiful example of just pouring everything you have into your kid, being selfless in in that effort. Being a father now, talk about kind of how that shaped the way that you think about raising your children. It's it's inspiring, but it also constantly makes you think. My parents did a great job of putting me in a place where I knew I was always loved. We always had a meal. We always had utilities. We weren't wealthy, but I feel privileged. I mean, I had two parents that that loved me, would do anything for me. But loving me doesn't always mean being fun. They had rules. They had accountability. We didn't have timeout back then. My aunts got grounded. They gave me direct feedback, and they gave they set a pretty good example of what was acceptable and what wasn't. And so I would say, you know, I've I've carried that into my 
into my parenting. You know, one of the more interesting things is my parents didn't have hardly anything growing up. And they always wanted me to have more than they had. And they put that into me and they gave it to me. They gave me everything they had that wasn't enough to spoil me or make me soft. And like them, I wanted to give my kids more than I had. And I did, but it always was top of mind how not to turn them into soft, entitled little shits. And so, you know, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. And, you know, there's part of me that I, I believe everybody has some sort of superpower or some kind of talent that makes them unique. And my talent isn't running fast. It's not being smarter than most people. It's, it's the ability to grind. And if I had parented myself instead of my parents parenting me, I would have robbed myself of that superpower. And that's something I think about with my kids. Fortunately, they're, they're like their mother. Their, their intellect is far superior to mine. And somehow, some way, they know how to grow them too. So that's a long-winded answer. I took a lot from my parents. Watching the way they parented me made me want to be the best parent I could be. And that doesn't mean perfect. It means the best that I can be. No, no. It, that's only something we, we try to attain, but rarely, if ever, is it. You know, I matured quickly and unfortunately probably stopped growing after eighth grade, certainly didn't grow anymore after ninth, and and watched guys like you shoot past me in high school in, in height and strength and speed. I, I think, but so often I remember it was those guys that really had those big growth spurts. And some of them weren't even until college. It was a much later, you know, blooming as we like to call it. But I think that's just in some ways that's such poetic justice because, you know, you kind of get yours once, once that happens. And so, you know, as you progress through middle school and into high school, clearly recognizing that you had some athletic talents, like, yeah, cause I think it's in, I want to get into College football, big announcement yesterday with one of the greatest coaches of all time retiring, Nick Saban. Like, we'll, we'll start, we'll unpack that a little bit too. But just talk about that feeling that you realize, like, okay, I've got something here that may allow me to continue sports past high school. And then because of the college that you chose, there was also an academic side there as well. So talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So, you would think I would have known, but I really, I didn't. I fancied myself as a basketball player. And mm-hmm. partway through my junior year in high school, I got cut from the basketball team. And I wish I had some great story about how the coach did me wrong. I think the coach did me a favor and gave me a year more than I deserved. The other kids were just better than me. And it, it wasn't a coin toss. They were markedly better than I was. Either way, it's a hard message to hear when you're not good enough. And my high school, they didn't have lacrosse and all the sports they have now. They have baseball, basketball, football. And we, we talked about my prowess on the baseball field. So that wasn't an option. <laughs> and so I got into football. And I was, when, when I was talking to the coaches, I was almost in tears, you know, to ask to play football. And I'll never forget one of the guys, uh, one of the coaches said, you're too much of a pussy to play football because you're a basketball player. And... Mm. 
you know, just told him, like, if that's the case, then you're going to have a lot to laugh at, but I don't, I don't have anywhere else to go and I want, I want to play a sport. And so, yeah, they bring me out there and put me in pads and I was a, a ref, but that same, that same coach that made the comment, he called over the varsity coaches and it was to make fun of me. He said, basically, he called me spaz. He said, watch this guy. And the head coach pulled me out of practice and he said, can you stay after a practice at the varsity? And I just thought it was strange. And he pulled me aside and he said, you have something these other kids don't. It's not that you're better than them. It's just you're tougher than they are. And he called out a very prominent senior in practice that day. He said, we're running this play and the basketball player is going to knock you on your ass. And that's what happened. And a week later, I was on varsity. A week after that, the head coach called me into his office and he told me, nobody on the team likes you and the seniors want you off the team. And so to stay on the team, the deal he cut was I had to do this, what they called boot camp for a month before school started every day, which was a bunch of terrible exercises, boxes, climbing logs, basically running till you puke. And you know, at that point, I knew I wanted it more than they did. And this is something I shouldn't say out loud. I didn't necessarily love football. What motivated me is I wanted to knock the shit out of every one of those dickheads. And it was a place I could do it legally. And, mm-hmm. you know, I had a coach tell me once it was a sickness, but whatever it was, that was the difference. And I wanted to go to practice because I wanted to hit people. And I became quite good at it. And it was a place where it didn't matter how rich their dad was, how hot their girlfriend was, how fast their car was, or how popular they were. That was one place they couldn't hide from me. And I didn't get in trouble for doing it. And so that was what drove me. I wish I could say it was God. I wish I could say I just had a natural motor, but I was angry. So why was the compromise or how did, how did that work where you, you know, you've got a team and it's, it's a team sport made up of individual athletes, but it's nonetheless a team sport. How did the agreement work where somehow it was, you know, you weren't going to get kicked off the team if you did this boot camp? Like that, that's interesting to me. So, and it wasn't all of the players, it was some of them. And, you know, the general knock on me was one of the nicknames I got was half speed hero. And what that meant was going nuts in practice. And my particular coach was old school. He loved that. And he told me that's why they didn't like me. He told me to keep doing it. He told them to get out of their office. It wasn't a discussion, but I think he gave them that to placate them. And then I think there was also Got part it. of him that wanted to see if I could do it or I would do it or if, if I was going to run and cry to mom about it. And I think it told him what he needed to know. And I think it earned some credibility with some of the other people. So a little insight on on today's football playing field. You know, had one of the greatest college coaches, at least in in my lifetime, announced his retirement yesterday. Certainly, I haven't heard him say this, but you read and listen that kind of the direction that the game is going maybe wasn't what he envisioned. And so having been a college athlete, you know, and and saw it at 
what you described to me is the purity of sports and that it's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter where you come from, what your background is, how good looking your girlfriend is, how fast your car is. Like you get out on the field and it's, it's go time. Right. right? And so, you know, with the portal, with NIL, with college finally sort of admitting that it's a big, gigantic business, what are your viewpoints on that having played the game at that level? So I'll never get in the way of anybody making a dollar and having freedom. I'm a, I'm a big believer in that. But with that said, I think there's a level of commitment. And I think if you sign up for the year, especially if you take money to do it, you finish. And so I, it's not fun for a fan to watch these kids transfer. And if I were their parent, I would want to understand the transfer. And I have the luxury now of being able to say, I don't want to go across the street for $50,000. But if you're already at an elite program where you can get visibility, if you think you want to play at the next level, then what are you running towards? Is it money? I get it. If the coach tells you you're not going to play next year and you need reps, that's one thing. If you have a family issue, maybe you need to get closer to home. I don't know. Or there's other things. You know, I think about my own situation. It wasn't a transfer, but me going to Rice, that was an opportunity. I got to get a degree that I wouldn't have other, otherwise academically qualified for. And so mm -hmm. if you're a kid that you're at University X that's ranked 130th academically, and all of a sudden you get an op opportunity your junior year to transfer to something where it's ranked 25th, or you want to be a business major, but you're at a liberal arts school that doesn't have that. I mean, I think there's reasons for it, but right now I think it's strictly financially driven. And then the other part of it is, is I think you have some young people that are giving up too early when they don't start. So you have a lot of elite talent right. that has to sit out for a year and they don't they're missing that experience of grinding to get a starting job. So you see a lot of four, four star guys have phenomenal talent. They don't stay in one place because they don't start another. So I don't like that part of it, but I think the kids have the right. The challenge is I think it's a, it's a complete farce. And if the NCAA had the integrity and the courage to enforce it, every single program would be on probation right now. And, and why do I say that? Mm. Is that it is specifically a not pay for play program. And coaches are specifically forbidden for having any talks with alums about how that money is divvied up. When you say every offensive lineman at the University of Texas is getting $50,000, it's pay for play. And I, I graduated from Texas in grad school. I, I, I support them. I'm not because every other school's doing it too. But that's what it is. If you tell me every single alumni group that's making an NIL payment doesn't know who the coach wants them to pay and how much, steal words from George Strait, <laughs> I got some oceanfront property for you in Arizona. <laughs> uh, so, you know, if we're going to do it, I think, well I think, I think we're, we, we should be honest about it and transparent, say this is what it is. And, but, you know, how many kids have gotten NIL checks and have actually done anything to earn it? There's a few. I mean, there's some people that they're getting NIL is supposed to be for Jersey money, trading cards. Are you showing up at a car dealership to promote something? But 99% of them, the only thing they're doing is, is playing. And so it is pay for play. Mm -hmm. And 
you know, I think we should just, we should call it that. No, I agree. And, you know, for somebody that has had a lot of success in business, which we'll get to, you know, and then you, it's one thing to become successful. It's a much other thing to stay successful for a long time and then have a body of work and or, you know, a pot of gold to to pass down to the next generation. I think a big piece that they're missing and all that, and I love your thoughts, is is just the financial literacy piece. You know, once these kids, whether it's $10,000 or a million dollars, they should be appointed a financial advisor and only so much of that money can be used. So if they do get hurt, if things don't pan out, at least they've got something, right? I mean, the whole point of starting to pay college players was that it's such a big business. The schools are making so much money. Let's share some of that wealth. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think it's great. I think it's hard. I and mean, we have that in the NFL and we have it in the NBA. Yet every year we have these kids going bankrupt. You know, the, the challenge is, is, is greed and ego are driving both sides. Every player wants money. Mm-hmm. They're less interested in having 50-year-old white guys tell them how to spend it. You know, you, I was a good kid at 18. If somebody dropped $50,000 in my bank account, it's going to be beer, cars, and party. There's, there's not going to be a 401k. Right. And I'm going to get stunned at the end of the year that I had to pay taxes on. Exactly. And my parents would have said, Mike, you're an idiot. Don't do it. Our coaches would have said that. I just, I wasn't smart enough to listen to it. But I'm hoping some of those kids are getting those lessons. That, you know, I know I took a shot at the University of Texas, so I had a backpedal. I know they're actually doing that. I know mm-hmm. Rice talks to their kids about it, but Rice, the Rice kids aren't getting life-changing money, but th- there are some places that are doing it. So I, I know people care, but the people giving the money, they're not doing it because... If you're a University of Florida booster, you're doing it because you want to see your your school win a title. One thing I know that is is direct, and maybe this is the intensity or something, but it's there's no way a 70 year old billionaire gives a shit about an 18 year old kid from the inner city. That's mm-hmm. if that kid couldn't help his team win a national championship, that guy wouldn't give him five dollars on the side of the road. So anybody that says they're doing it for, for philanthropy, I I still buy it. Right. So before we move out of the uh, the college world and, and into your professional career, Mike, tell the listeners about the Arkansas Care Package. Yeah, so uh, never never got there, but my, my freshman year, we were fortunate. Arkansas had a down year, and we were on our upswing, and we beat them in Arkansas. And I I love John Goodman. I love Revenge of the Nerds, and there's a scene in there after they lost the nerds and it happened that for those of you that are old enough, you ought to go Google the, the scene, but they have the letter A on their uniform and it's red. And he has this great monologue, but he finishes it with, you just got your asses whipped by a bunch of goddamn nerds. And so anyways, I tried to uh, send that at uh, university of Arkansas, the coach intercepted. It wasn't happy. It never got there. And, Looking back, it was a terrible decision. <laughs> I mean, you want to talk about like not knowing how to handle any success. So it, was, it would have been poor form, but it's funny to talk about now that actually didn't happen. Sure, sure. Love it. So if if you go look 
Mike Eklund up on LinkedIn and, and certainly in the in the notes of this podcast will include information of ways to find out what he's doing today. But I particularly like back to sort of the tenacious and the direct and the enforcer. His LinkedIn message says, if I don't know you, I'm not interested in whatever crap you're trying to slang <laughs> over LinkedIn, which I just... Getting to know you, it's just it, it's so appropriate that that would say that on on your LinkedIn profile. But you are in a really interesting space, and I have certainly watched the legalization of marijuana, like a lot of things, move from West Coast to East Coast. And you know, being in the great state of Texas, long known as an agricultural state. I'm real interested every time the legislature gets together, what advances towards that uh, our state might make. But we're also in a a peculiar time in real estate in that there's there's a lot of it, but the the games are sort of changing. Financing has dried up. Banks are not lending like they were, interest rates, et cetera. You know, Anybody can pick up the Wall Street Journal and hit the highlights, but maybe start macro global kind of how you view the world of real estate from where you sit, Mike, and then we'll start really narrowing into the micro space that you're in. And in my opinion, they're incredibly interesting and incredibly successful real estate fund and investment platform that you've created. So starting at, at the macro, yeah, I think there's there's going to be a couple of groups that, that kind of we see shake out. And the first is the one that everybody's expecting. People that either have too much debt or have a bunch of floating rate debt, their hand is going to be forced. But the rest of us, we own assets and we're looking to acquire assets. And like all good real estate people, we think everything we own is worth more than the market thinks it is. And everything we're trying to buy, we think is, is worth much less. And in reality, if everybody had to sell their real estate today, I mean, this as an individual, not flooding the market with a trillion properties. But if you went to any real estate owner today and said, hey, you know, you have, today's the day you have to sell. Everything is worth less than it was a year and a half, two years ago. And most people don't want to say that out loud. It's a fact. What people will say, and there, there's some truth to it, is nothing. Very little is transacting. So we don't really know where values are. In my head, I think we're 20% lower than we were. The hard part is people after the last credit crunch did not lever as much. It used to be 70, and then people get their mes debt and get them up to 90. People were a little more responsible this time. You know, we had 60% debt, 65%. So they have a lot of skin in the game. It's hard to walk away. So they're more likely to make a capital call and, and wait it out. And so I think until rates come down, and if I knew when that was with certainty, I'd already be retired. But my best guess is I think over the next 18 to 24 months, interest rates will be lower than they are today by how much and how that happens. I, I don't have a clue. But one other interesting thing that's happened is in this last run-up, we had a lot of crowdsourcing. 
which is basically a digital tick. You have a bunch of investors that don't know each other. They're cutting 10 to $25,000 checks. And when those assets get in trouble and you have 350 investors and you make a capital call, that's not going to go well. So I think some of these crowdsourcing platforms are going to have a lot of trouble. I think those sponsors are going to have a lot of trouble. And then as those things go back to the bank, I think they'll, they'll create some, some opportunities. And so we're looking at now is we're looking at debt, potentially purchase at a discount. Other things that we're looking at are, and, and these are hard to find, things that pencil with current economics where we don't need crazy debt. We want strong current cash flow. We're looking around 9% yield. And I know there's going to be somebody out there saying, well, yeah, Mike, I'm looking for that too. That means you're not buying anything. And that's the truth. They would be right. I'm not buying anything today. But if I have to sit on my hands for a year rather than get myself into trouble or overpay for something, that's, that's what I'm going to do. It would be slow and methodical and, and just write with good, underwrite with good, good discipline. Well said, my friend. So, so really before we dive into the more micro space that you're in and what you've created, I want to go back to kind of postgraduate school and a call from home to Beijing, if you're willing to talk about that and, and some of the quick decisions that you were faced with. Yeah, that was tough. So I had, I was international controller for Heinz. It's a Houston-based uh, real estate developer. I've got to spend a second on them. I mean, you want to talk about quality people in real estate, people that have done amazing projects, but I can't say enough good things about the Heinz family. And one of the things that they always stressed to us was doing what's right when nobody's watching. And so one, I learned a ton about real estate there, but two, it really, it matched with my values. And anytime there was a hard decision, they focused on what was right and what was best for the investors. So that was, I was really thankful for that. But needless to say, there was a lot of travel and I got a call. I found out my wife was pregnant with twins when I was in Beijing and you never you, you never want to be out of town for that type of, of message, especially not half a world away. It was mm-hmm. a surprise, but it was still great news. And so, you know, we get home, we're excited. And at the point where we went to the appointment to find out what the sex of the babies were, we found out they had what's called twin-to-twin transfusion syndrome, which meant you had identical twins that were sharing the same placenta and one was getting all of the resources and all of the waste, and the other was getting starved. It was effectively killing both of them. And so, you know, come in. We don't get, you know, we don't have Dr. Google like we did, like we do today. We had the internet, but not, we couldn't get as much information. And, you know, all of our options were bad. You know, they said you could abort, you could go get an amnio reduction, which means basically sticking a needle in my wife's belly and draining a bunch of fluid out. And then there was a trial procedure that you could do. They were doing a study in San Francisco. You go live there for nine months and you don't know whether you're going to get the procedure or not because it was double blind. And then there was the doctor that created the procedure that I don't want to use the word went rogue, but kind of did. And, and our doctor, uh, she was a tough cookie. She called him and said, you're going to, 
you're going to see this family. And so that night we went and did the amnio reduction because I wanted to feel like we were, well, we wanted to feel like we were doing something. And sure. that gave relief for a couple of days, but it, until we got to Florida and then we went and had surgery and everything tracked well for a while. And there was one day where my wife said, yeah, I've got my appointment, but we'd had four or five good appointments in a row. She said, I'll just do this when it's quick. And our doctor, she's Czech. And so she, she, she speaks good English, but it sometimes will not know when to use slang or not. But she, that was the day she told my wife we were going to schedule a C-section and she was going to have those babies out 60 seconds dead or alive. And so you don't, you really don't want John Wayne talking to your wife, right? And <laughs> needless to say, that was extremely tough to hear. So it was very emotional for us. We weren't in control. And, you know, we had the C-section. Babies came out. It was good for a day. And, and uh, things quickly deteriorated. Lungs collapsed. We were the NICU for almost a month. And, you know, I'll never forget. We had a, you know, they called us around midnight and said this, they're going into, I believe it was level three, whatever the bad NICU was. And they said, we can't talk right now. And so one's having emergency surgery. They're both on ventilators. and It's terrible. And they sent this young pediatrician in. She was such a kind soul, but what a terrible thing to do to her. And, you know, I remember asking her, are we going to be okay? And she was honest and with a ton of compassion said, you know, your, your babies are very sick. And, you know, all we did was cry. I mean, it was that it was real. It, that's when we realized we could lose. And that was tough. Um, I wish I knew who that doctor's name. I'd like to go give her a big hug and say thank you because she did show compassion, but she also shot us straight. And it was really hard to hear. But both our girls are doing well. They're 19 years old now. One's a government major and a cheerleader in Georgetown. And the other one is an economics major at Dartmouth. And she's on the triathlon club team and skis and does all kinds of things. So story has a happy ending, but it was, it was tough getting there. So in those, those gut, gut wrenching moments, you know, where you just, you know, that it's completely out of your hands, right? As much as you are a leader as a father as a business person, uh, as a husband in life, like you can't do anything. Just reflect back for a minute on that feeling. And then has that feeling in different ways come up in, in business and taught you how to deal with it maybe in a different manner than you would absent that experience? So it's, it's a terrible feeling. It's you're helpless. The stakes are high. And not only can you not fix it, you, you almost have no influence on the outcome. And the best thing I could liken it to is it's everything you deal with in a casino uh, without any of the fun. I mean, you're, mm. you, you go put a dollar in this machine and you pull it and it tells you what happened. And the odds tell you it's going to be bad news. So the odds told us it was going to be bad news. Right. It, you don't have a choice. Like, it, you know, today, if I said I had to go through that again, I'm not sure how we get through it. It's just, you're there. You got your family and you have no other choice, but to, to, to do what you need to do. And you know what I would say, what I've learned from that is 
probably the opposite of what I should learn. You know, people always say, don't worry about what you can't control. It's, you know, don't, it's not worth losing sleep mm-hmm. over. And I'm the opposite. I don't worry about things that I can control because I'll know I'll do. And so I would say, you know, if there's a development need for me today, sometimes there's things in business that I can't control. And I care deeply about my investors and, and what we're doing. And that's what keeps me awake at night. And so I think I've learned that that's not a healthy way to process it. But if I'm being honest with myself, it's a skill I haven't learned. I'll still obsess over anything that I can't control. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's certainly an outlier in the way that you approach business, because I think a lot of people are so focused on the things that they should already be doing and controlling almost table stakes. And they're missing that piece over there, which is really, if you can figure that out, even one out of 10 times, like that's, that's the game changer. So as you progress to where you are today, and I promise we're going to get there, but I think in order to get there, you've got to, you've got to understand the past and where you came from. You know, not all of your career and your advice to your investors was spot on. So talk about some of the pitfalls that gave you the strength and the conviction to now be doing what you're doing. Sure. You know, along the way, we've had transactions that haven't gone well. It was actually our very first one. We were building the residential component of a mixed-use development in Austin at the old Concordia campus. And, you know, you had the credit crunch, so that hit us. The main development got stopped, ran out of money, so we didn't have the utilities delivered to us that we were supposed to. The office building that Texas Monthly was supposed to go into, it was going to be a big demand driver that slowed down. Ultimately, the main developer on that ended up going to prison for defrauding a bank and it was it was really tough and and we lost money on that deal but what i'll tell you is what we got from that was we were really direct with our investors we were communicating with them quarterly and we were being completely transparent we gave them bad news and it doesn't mean that they liked it but they got it and i remember we were giving them Bad news, probably six to nine months before anybody in any of their, they eventually learned that the whole world was, was crumbling, but none of their other sponsors had told them that. The other things that we did is my business partner and I, we moved our co-investment to the first loss position. So we said, we are going to be 100% wiped out before you lose your first dollar. And then that, de- that deal also had management fees for us to do the work. So we didn't pay ourselves for two years because we said, we're going to throw that in too, because we know. We want. And then when we got out of it, those homes had warranties and we distributed after we paid the bank off. Uh, you want to talk about a participation trophy. Our lender said we were the only real estate deal they did that paid in full. Still the biggest loss in my career, but we also took on the home warranty. Personally, we didn't. We gave the investors all the money that came out. And then my business partner and I funded the home warranty for a year. And most of the subs that worked on the project, they were bust, so they couldn't honor it. So that was another thirty and forty thousand dollars that we lost. And you know, I'd say the lesson learned there is is one, how dangerous dangerous leverage can be in real estate. And the other is is working with investors. 
the only thing worse than bad news is surprising somebody or sugarcoating. So we are always extremely direct. We communicate quarterly. And when we say our investors' money is more important than ours, we don't just say it. We show it. And the way that we show it is we move our money to the first loss position and we give away our fees. And when you work for free, when a deal goes bad and you lose 100% of your money, you can have a real conversation with an investor that knows you have empathy. If they lose 5 to 10% and you lost 100%, it's hard for them to say that you don't care and you, you don't understand where they're coming from. So not a great way to get started, but surprisingly, it's, it's built a lot of goodwill. Yeah. So fast forwarding to when you focused in on the marijuana industry and the role that your investment thesis would play to support that, kind of get us up to speed there and, and how that's ramped up to where you are today. Yeah. So we around 2014, started researching. And, and what our thesis is, is that we are trying to find this price risk where we can get the same return somebody else is with taking less risk or take the same risk that they're taking but get a higher return. And that sounds like hubris, but and it is hubris if you're, if you're buying $300 million buildings. Like you have all smart people, everybody has perfect information. So what we try to focus on are smaller transaction sizes where you have less sophisticated players and you also have less capital chasing those same deals. And so cannabis was a pretty toxic asset class. Nobody wanted to touch it. You couldn't get debt on it. And so what we wanted was data. Data didn't exist. So we built it for Denver and we mapped every single cannabis property in Denver from 2012 to 2014 when they went from medical to rec. And what we saw is that vacancy rates in those submarkets went from 6% to 1%. And the cannabis submarkets rental rates jumped 150 to 250% and same asset sales were 2x. The vacancy was kind of cool. The same asset sale was kind of cool. The rent growth was something I've never seen in my career. For context, we typically underwrite 3 to 5% annual rent growth. I've always seen it grow in percentages, never seen it grow in multiples in such a short period of time. And so we said, as we wanted to go find the next one of those markets, which was Portland. And we started. And and so Mike, when, when you started crunching that data, did you fully understand what was driving those multiples in rents at the time? So we got the data back. And so we knew there was something there, but we didn't quite have the why yet. And what we dug into is the why. And what we found is about 85 to 90% of commercial real real estate has debt on it. And that's what makes the real estate return work usually. Every single loan doc had covenants in it that said you couldn't do anything that was federally illegal. And also most loan docs, the lender has the right to approve who your tenant is. So that took, call it 90% of the inventory off the board. So that leaves you with 10%. Within that remaining 10%, you've got to find a building that's vacant. You've got to find the building that has the right zoning. And if you have, you have to have enough power, enough water, and then you got to find a landlord that has all those things that's willing to list at least a cannabis guy. 
And I think I'm going to find Santa Claus before I find that individual. And so, uh, you know, those, those are the reasons is it was a needle in the haystack. But what we could do is we could go buy a building all cash and we could be that landlord. And so what we yeah. did is we would buy buildings at 80 a foot, set our lease rates at around 16% of our purchase price per year. And we'd have our tenants invest 150 to $200 a foot into the building. And so we knew if they failed, one, they had skin had a better asset. And, and yeah, but we could sell it to, we could go back and lease it to a furniture shop or sell it to a manufacturing shop and, and, and still make money. So really the, any finish out they wanted to do was on them. That wasn't a consideration as part of the lead. I got you. Okay. In the early. And so that, right, 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 right. That thesis you took to Portland and that's kind of where you, you did your homework in Denver and then deployed in Portland, deployed in Portland and then came back and bought stabilized assets in Colorado at really high cap rates. And then we expanded into Arizona and then Nevada. And they always talk about gateway drug use. Well, for us, the gateway drug was, was real estate. And then we've ultimately moved on and we've take, made operating investments in seven of the operating companies. So we were a landlord and, and now we're an operator. Mm-hmm. And so as a, as a potential investor, let's say, are you, can the investor participate on one side of that equation or the other, or if they invest with you guys, they invest on both sides? So the answer is, the simple answer is they can invest in whatever they want to. In the early days, we tried raising a fund and there was nobody that wanted to give us discretionary money in the cannabis space. So every single transaction, we syndicate one off. And we've only done one that had the real estate and the operation together. Every single one, we've kept them separate because people have different risk tolerances. How do the investment returns mirror each other or are completely different based on one being sort of a fixed asset driven by, you know, rents and market value and another being a brand, a loyal following, penetration of consumerism, et cetera? Like, are there any similarities that you've seen between the two or are they separate and distinct? Completely different animals and it's becoming uh, much more competitive on the operating side. What we found is the real estate is fairly predictable. You immediately start getting distributions, which investors love. And then appreciation, that's the other thing that's unique. So much of our return comes from interim cash flow, where in real estate, it's typically terminal value. We've kind of inverted that. So real estate, we've kind of averaged out at around 20 or 21 IRR for the ones we've gone full circle on a five-year hold. The operating businesses, we haven't found one yet that's made interim distributions. And so you, you win or lose on exit. Those are... A lot more labor intensive, a lot riskier. We haven't had any fail yet. You know, there's no way you buy seven startups and they they all succeed. So sooner or later, we're going to have to have some bad news on on that. But we've you know had one go round trip, and I believe we got four X on that. And then the others, they're still in the game and various stages of development. Some are doing better than others, but I would say it takes a lot stronger stomach. Those could go five or ten x, or we could lose. We could lose every every dollar in one of those. 
And I'm opting for choice A. So control it. <laughs> Agreed. So and part of this is is a hook because I'm gonna want to have you you come back on. But if if we if we look out into the future, we're we're just we're hitting 2024, we're 11 days in. If we go to January 11th, 2028, what is this investment platform from an assets under management, uh, annual rental income, you know, all of the internal functions that you use to measure size, scope, scale, success? What 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 are we looking at? So it's probably zero because we are always looking for things that are out of favor. I think by 2028, there will be, if not full legalization, there will be a safe bank app. There will be a catalyst for us to exit. And so, you know, Got I think it. if that happens, debt becomes available. And I think it becomes just a num- another standard asset class. And I think we exit, we look for the next dislocation of, of capital. Where we're at today is we have uh, $200 million of exposure to cannabis type investments. You know, I'd say it's 70-ish percent towards real estate, 30% towards towards operating companies. But yeah, I, I think we'll, 2028, knock on wood, I think with the exception of Texas, I think we'll be out of it. Uh, Texas is where mm-hmm. we've put an application in and that one's personal to my partner and I. I think that would be a build and operate and hold forever. And I think that depending on the where the legislation goes, the legislation today makes it hard to make money and doesn't give it give access to many patients. I do think over time they will add some things potentially chronic pain, which I think is a is one of the most well-documented benefits of cannabis. I, I think sure. that'll increase the market size in Texas, but we have to be selected too. And so the state's evaluating right now whether they're going to add more licenses or not. If so, how many? And um, I believe they got about 160 applications, which we're one of. So I, I think we've put together a good team and a good plan. And I think we'd be a compelling choice, but I'm sure everybody thinks that. Mm-hmm. So as you as you stare through your crystal ball, thinking you know by 2028, the cannabis industry is going to be where it is from a legalization standpoint. You know, clearly from a, a banking standpoint, I think you're talking, you know, at a federal level versus what's available now with credit unions and things like that locally. What's the next thing? Is it is it what's going on again? kind of west coast to east and you read about Oregon I think was the first with legalization of of psilocybin is it something in that same sort of plant based you know been called forever a drug in reality it grows out of the ground just like corn or anything else what do you think I think there's a real opportunity there on the science side and for people that actually manufacture mm-hmm. and and apply medicine to it what I would say is that that's probably a step outside of our skill set. They don't have the same real estate needs. And what was compelling for us, besides the data that we found on the real estate side, and what got us in the operational side is we had 40 tenants in a fishbowl. It allowed us to get into an industry and learn it uh, with our on-ramp being our core business. 
psilocybin and all the other, you know, ketamine and all those other things. I think there's a lot of promise, but we would have to make our direct entry on the science side. I, I just don't think that we're equipped for that. I, I think somebody's going to make a lot of money, but it's, it's probably not, not us. So without, you know, selling the secret sauce down the river, I mean, what, what do you see coming? As far as cannabis or as far as real estate? As far as real estate, oh, like what are you looking at? Yeah, so no, I'll, I'll, I'll get the secret sauce because we'll all, we'll all disagree with each other. But yeah, I think near term, I think a lot of community and regional banks that are heavy with real estate exposure, I think they're going to have real-time issues to deal with. And we're already seeing that. So I think we're going to be able to start pricing debt again. I think there's going to be preferred equity opportunities where developers maybe get a construction loan for 50 or 55% and they want somebody to take them up to 65, 70% and you can get into the, the mid-teens on that, but be in a lower risk position. I think that's there. I think you know, what we've, well, I know what we've seen in the past is when you come out of these, we'll take multifamily, for example. I think there's, a, it's the, the deals that get, Funded first, coming out of the downturn, those tend to be the best. I think there's going to be co-GP opportunity where we can go in and take a hybrid LPGP type position with some really talented developers. Uh, so I think we'll have that opportunity. Self-storage is an asset class that we find very interesting. It's got an extremely sticky tendency. Um, there's some really good operators out there and still fragmented. So I, I think there's opportunity there and it's, it's an excellent land banking strategy. So yeah, there's a lot of different things that you know, we, we let brokers know that if you have something that's a little bit weird or small in size, you know, most institutions don't want to cut a check that's smaller than say $25, $30 million. We like doing five and $10 million deals. And so I, I think that creates a lot of opportunity for us. Wisely put, my friend. So as we're beginning to wrap this up, and and as I knew it would be, I mean, I've taken so many notes, chock full of just knowledge and depth and things that, you know, most people haven't had to face in their life and the way you've learned from it. Tell me something that nobody knows about you. This one's tough because I... I wear my heart on my sleeve and I, I, I say a lot more than I should. <laughs> oh gosh. I might have to go to very few people know about me. That's fine. Normally I, I, I can be a good interview and have a lot of fun. I'm just trying to think there's just not much that, uh, I'll, I'll throw one out. This is pretty benign. I, I love to teach. I love to teach, mentor. One of my favorite things that we do is we have a summer internship program. It's unpaid. It is completely intern centric. We, we teach, we, it's like taking a graduate level real estate class. We give them cases, give them site visits. And I don't know why, but it gives me energy and I love it. I love teaching. And then one of my favorite things to do is at my house, it's affectionately known as the, the lion speech. It's talking to the, the kids today about what I think they should be doing at this point, you know, whether it's college and then early in their career, mid-career and late career to be successful. The whole concept is 
you don't have to agree that my generation's right. Just acknowledge that we're in charge right now and we're willing to give you the teacher's the teacher's <laughs> manual of, of how to manipulate us. Yep. And, and so there's, in my head, there's a lot of wisdom there and I, I love sharing that. And, and I like getting eye rolls from my daughters when I talk about it. Well, clearly based on the little bit of, of intel you gave us on where they are and what they're doing, it's resonating and, and, and they're capitalizing from it. Last point, last discussion point is, as we move to close, you know, there's a, there's a saying out there that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And I like to turn it around and say, it's not who you know, but who knows you. So in thinking about this podcast as a medium to have captured your story, talked about, you know, this, this uh, insight from lack of sight that you gained early in life. What do you want people to know about Mike Eklund? I would say the number one thing is I'm going to shoot you straight. I will tell you if I'm uncomfortable doing something. I will tell you no sometimes. But if I tell you I'm going to do something, it's going to get done. You can trust me with a secret. If you tell me something and tell me not to tell anybody else, it's going in the vault and it's never coming out. And I would say that my whole existence, whether it be friendship, business, is built on trust. My philosophy, rightly or wrongly, about trust is how you earn it, keep it, is doing those things, having hard conversations, telling people no, doing what you say you're going to do, and not betraying the trust. So. I would say trustworthy, but I wanted to put some context around it because just saying trustworthy is like the kid that comes in when you interview him and you're like, well, what are you good at? He's like, well, I'm a people person. And I always think to myself, if you're a people person, you don't have to tell me that. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so usually if somebody tells me, well, if said. somebody tells me about their integrity, I usually start grabbing my wallet, but that would be my, my one takeaway. And I, I have immature well, humor. I, I don't take myself too seriously. <laughs> Love to laugh. And especially if I can be the butt end of the joke, it makes other people happy. Humbly said, my friend, and I look forward to many more opportunities to laugh together. You know, I, I will say this in the in the short amount of time that we've gotten to know each other. You You may not have been able to see the world the same way that, others did when they were born and and growing up. But what I've learned about you and the body of work you've created, not only personally in your life with your wife and kids and and friendships, but in business, I think certainly the world sees you now as who you are and you should be very proud of that. So thanks for joining me on the climb. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you for inviting me and I appreciate your friendship as well. So this was a lot of fun. And look forward to uh, hearing from Scott. Absolutely. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.